So we are studying through the book of 2 Thessalonians. This has been a great study. It's been a heavy study. It's been a, a study that has shown us things we want to see. It's shown us things we don't want to see. And it showed us some things to look forward to. But Paul transitioned last week, moving from theological issues that the Thessalonians need to, needed to hear to this week, he is going to be talking about issues actually happening within the church relationally. Last week, we talked about, if you remember, Paul had two prayer requests. One was that the gospel would continue to spread unhindered, and then secondly, that he and Silas and Timothy would be protected from the evil and wicked men. And that protection from the evil and wicked men wasn't for their own personal comfort. It was, again, so that the gospel would continue to be spread. He reminded the Thessalonians that these evil men are around. In fact, we knew they were in Thessalonica because they ran Paul and his companions out of town when they had been there trying to minister. But he reminds the Thessalonians, even though these evil wicked men and the evil one, Satan himself, is out to hinder the gospel, out to hurt the church, out to persecute and devour and destroy, God is faithful, and He will establish them and he will guard them. Today we will continue. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen. But I encourage you to open your Bible if you have one. And we're going to start in verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So we understand right off the bat, Paul is giving a command. He says so. And we know what a command means. In military jargon, it might even be referred to as an order. But Paul is giving instructions with authority. He's not giving instructions with his authority as, a, as an apostle. He's not giving his instructions, his commands as with authority of being a pastor. He's not even doing it as a friend of the church. He is using the authority of Jesus Christ is who he names. I give this to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the, most, that is the strongest, most possible authority that he could possibly use. It can be safe to say that Paul's not playing around on this command, on this teaching. You can almost sense that Paul's patience is beginning to wear thin on this subject. You may understand Paul's frustration. If you yourself have ever had to give instructions to someone more than once, you've had to tell them over and over to the same individual or the same group of people that, that you have, a, have something that they need to do. As parents, we definitely get that. How many times have I told you? As a student pastor, I get it with the students. How many times have I said, don't sit on the pool table, right? How many times have I said, don't lay on the ping pong table? Well, they don't, but I'm just trying to come up with examples. You know what I'm saying. So, but we get it. If you're a supervisor, there may be someone under your uh, authority that you constantly are having to tell the same thing to over and over. But what was Paul's command? His instruction for the whole congregation of Thessalonica was to disassociate themselves from those who are walking in idleness. Now, Paul normally is speaking to us as believers, and he tells us to walk worthy. In, in Ephesians, he tells us to walk worthy of the calling that God has placed on our lives. In Colossians, he tells us to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. 
In 2 Thessalonians, in this same letter, he says, walk worthy of God. All of this is for the purpose of discipleship. Paul didn't simply go out and start new churches. He went out and made disciples as Jesus had commanded they do. He didn't lead them to a saving knowledge and abandon them. He didn't just bring them to the baptismal waters and leave them. Some people think that's the end game, but that's really just the beginning. We are all about discipling one another, about getting us to be more like Jesus each day. But this is, but he's telling them in this case to avoid the people. If you're going to walk worthy, you need to avoid the people who are walking in idleness. Well, idleness is, that is translated here is one of those situations where the Greek word, the original language conveys more than what our English word tends to. What do I mean? Well, idleness actually means to act in an undisciplined, irresponsible, or disorderly man- manner. You say, well, Kenan, if I looked idleness up in the Webster Dictionary, that is not what it would say. And you're right. It would talk about being lazy. It would talk about not being active. But that is the issue here, that this, this verse, in this, this word in the Greek isn't really talking about idleness. So how did we get to idleness here? Well, the English translators like to make sure they use the context of what's happening in the Scripture. And in this context, Paul is talking about those who are not willing to work, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So in the context, the English translators of the English Standard Version, which I just read to you, have used the word idleness. But the Young's translation, Young's literal translation says, withdraw yourselves from every brother disorderly walking. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly. The King James Version says, withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. The New American Standard says, keep away from every brother who leads, to, leads an unruly life And the NIV, which is possibly the best translation for this particular subject, says, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. So what's the issue? What's important to understand here is Paul's opinion is that the behavior of these irresponsible individuals stands in tension with and in contrast to living worthy of God and responsibly toward others. And it is clearly not according to the teaching they had received from Paul and his companions. What we find here is not a problem of inactivity, if you will, but rather the wrong kind of activity. The idlers are involved in activity that is disrupting the community of believers instead of benefiting them. Michael Holmes points it out this way. He says, the primary emphasis is not on sloth or laziness but rather on an irresponsible attitude toward the obligation of work. So it's not necessarily that they're lazy. It's that they're unwilling to work, and it's that they are disrupting the congregation because of it, causing burdens. The obligation to work is the central aspect of what Paul describes as the tradition that has been taught to the Thessalonians beginning in verse 7. Check this out. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle or irresponsible when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, 
we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, Paul is emphasizing here that the key, what he is trying to express, is all of this is centered around the fact that they were not a burden, that it's paramount to living responsibly. So, it's the key to this passage. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Paul's life was about living out the commands of Christ. His life was to serve as an example to not only those he was pastoring, but get this, but also to any outsiders who may be watching. Jesus said, we are to be salt and light. The light we give is meant for others. Jesus says, or or the Psalms tells us that God's Word is a light for us. It will light our path. But our light is meant to shine and draw people to God through our life, through our actions, through our behavior. Paul goes on, if you remember now, he said back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 11, he said, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul has reminded the Thessalonians twice now that they should follow the example that he and his companions, Silas and Timothy, what they had laid out for them. He practices what he preaches. He is not a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do leader. Many of us could learn from Paul in our parenting, in our leadership, in other areas where we are quick to tell folks what they ought to be doing, but we're not willing to do it ourselves. Paul could go on and boldly state, I can encourage you to live this way because you have seen me living this way. I've often asked this question, is your life lived in such a way that you could be used as the example to a new believer of how a follower of Christ ought to walk, how a follower of Christ ought to live? not just in your public lives, but also in your private lives, in those places that no one else sees, in those places that you hope no one else finds out about, is your life able to be an example like Paul's is? What if we went a step further? What if at the end of this service we had a new believer come down front, they, they pray with Keith or they pray with John, they, they realize they're a sinner, they know they need a Savior, they surrender their life to follow Jesus the rest of their lives, as my old pastor used to say, for, given all they've got for as long as they got. They are determined to surrender and live for Jesus. So when I find that person has done that, I then look around the congregation and I point at you and I ask you to come up and I introduce the two of you and I say, you're a brand new you don't know how to walk following Jesus yet, here's your example. Could I do that with you? If you knew that was what was coming, would have you already left to make sure I didn't call you out? 
If I used your social media as an example, is it filled with grace and mercy and love, or is it typically not that? And we don't need to dive into the different ways it's not. Are you an example of someone who rightly divides and studies the Word of God and understands when you see things on social media that sounds Christianly, but in really, if you think critically about it, it's not, but you posted it anyway because it sounded good, and possibly it's because you didn't know better. Are you following God in His Word daily? Are you reading and, and studying and learning for the purpose of being a light to those around you in every aspect of your life? Can you be an example as Paul was? I'll be honest with you. There are times I could say that, and then there are times I can't say that. It's not meant to bring us down. It's meant to put a light on it and let us understand there are areas in our lives that don't look like Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to do. But check this out. Paul doesn't just see his example and his teachings as mere suggestions. In verse 10, he gives us that statement that many of us knew was in the Bible, but we might not have been able to tell you exactly where it was. But in verse 10, he says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's pretty severe. That's, Paul isn't pulling punches. The key, key word here is willing. Paul isn't speaking harshly against those who are not able to work. He is speaking against those in the Thessalonian church who are able, but they're not willing. And get this now, he's writing to believers in a church. He's writing to the Thessalonian believers. So he's talking about those within the confines of their congregation who are not willing to work. They would rather take advantage of their brothers and sisters in the church, expecting them to provide for them rather than to go provide for themselves. But Paul is contrasting his example of not being a burden to this example of the disruptive way these folks are living. So make sure you get this progression right. In his first letter, he encouraged those in the Thessalonian church to aspire to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their own hands so that their lives would be an example to outsiders and so they would be dependent on no one. Apparently, his encouragement was ignored. He hears of certain folks continuing to disrupt the congregation of Thessalonica, to live irresponsibly, and to be a burden on the rest of the congregation. So what does Paul say? He strengthens his argument from the first letter, and in this letter he leaves no doubt of the expectation when he says basically, fine, they won't heed my teaching, then they don't eat. He goes on and he expounds on the problem, making sure they get it. Check out verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness or walk irresponsibly, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You can hear the play on words there. It shows up in the English. It shows up even better in the Greek. But those who refused to work were disrupting the lives of others because they were using their free time that time that should have been used in working and, and providing for themselves, they were using that time to meddle 
in other people's affairs. Apparently, this wasn't only a problem for the believers in Thessalonica, because where Timothy ends up pastoring, Paul has to write to him kind of on the same subject. He says, check out in uh, 1 Timothy 5.13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. It would probably be at this moment I would again like to thank Pastor Joel for giving me the opportunity to preach a sermon that nobody really wants to hear, if I just want to put it honest. Last time I preached, in fact, the the message, what we mentioned earlier out of 1 Thessalonians 4, that was my passage the last time, and it involved sexual immorality. And if you were here, you remember how much fun that message was to preach. And now here we are getting all up in people's business with busybodies and gossips. Because truth be told, most of us have a problem with that. Here, in context, Paul is actually instructing Timothy concerning young widows. He eventually tells Timothy that the young widows should remarry if possible and have children to raise and to care for their household. Now, in their culture, in Paul's day, there were very few options for ladies outside of their home when it came to being able to provide for themselves. It was just the culture they were in. So Paul is saying for these women, working at home, caring for your children, caring for your household, that is your work. So don't hear I'm, I'm able to work, but I stay home with children, and, and that, so I'm, is Paul talking to me? No. If you're staying home with children, and you are taking care of your household, and you are raising your children in the fear of the Lord, then you are working. And we all know how much work that is. I was a stay-at-home dad for four years while I was in seminary the first time. Won't do that again. So what's Paul's point? If you're busy working, or whether it's a job or taking care of your household, you don't have as much idle time to become a busybody or a gossip. Your mind is occupied. Your time is occupied. It's been said before that idle hands are the devil's playground. I would go as far and add to that an idle mind is the devil's playground because you end up becoming a prisoner to your own desires, your own fleshly needs, your own agendas. I was telling the the service beforehand, I've started a new uh, weight management thing, as as we mentioned last week, that I knew I needed to do. You can't tell it today, but I am nine pounds lighter than I was last Sunday. And I'm telling you, it ain't fun. And that, and that, thank you, thank you, Matt, but that's not about me, but here's what, here's the point for bringing it up. Well, I guess it is about me, but, it's not the, but that's not the reason for bringing it up. The bringing it up because I sat at the house yesterday watching basketball. It was, a, it was an off day. I was at home all day long. And in my life before last Sunday, I would have been sitting at the couch. And every time I got a little bored, I would get up and go to the refrigerator. Or I would get up and go to the uh, counter or the cabinet and to find something to munch on. And over time, that added up and added up and added up. And it was because I had idleness in my life and I didn't do what was productive. 
The same happens in our other lives with our relationships. It's as simple as keeping yourself busy. Someone has said, Kenan, if you get hungry, if you find yourself in between your eatings that you're getting hungry on this meal, go find something to keep you busy. You're saying, well, Kenan, how in the world does this really relate to what Paul's talking about? Idleness can be disruptive. And it's typically, as it's not just in our own lives, it flows over into those around us. So Paul is, is going to move on, and he's going to tell those who are idle in verse 11, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He's basically repeating what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4. In other words, get back to work. Working quietly would be in contrast to the way they had been living, disruptive and being a busybody. Then he returns back to the whole congregation, and he brings it all right back to them. Look at verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul concludes these instructions with encouragement. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. Now, what's the context? The context would have been for those who were doing good that they would have been adding support and providing help for the needs of those who were unwilling to work. So he's not saying uh, don't give anymore. He's saying don't grow weary in giving. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in being charitable. Keep that up. But don't be naive or gullible. Don't be an enabler. Because he, remember, he said in verse 14 to take note of that person. So another way to say this, he says, don't enable. Don't, you need to pay attention. Take note of who could be working but is unwilling. Don't help them continue this behavior by bailing them out of their need. After all, this need may be something God has put in their life to get their attention. We even do this in the area of benevolence here at First Baptist, not with our church members. With our church members, if you have a legitimate need, we're out to help you. But we get a lot of people walking in that are not church members. John deals with so many and we discuss what happens with other area churches. And there is a network. Then we find out this person has, seems to have this same need every month. They were at the Methodist church last week, and they were at the Presbyterian church the month before that, and they were at, and you name it, they were at the Lindsay Lane. They, they made their rounds. And there's a, a whole process of them trying to work a system instead of working. And, and, and that's not, again, what Paul is talking about. He is talking about our working with the members of our church and making sure all the needs are met. However, if they're not working though they're able and they're causing disruption, we need to disassociate with them. Now, the purpose of this disassociation, we have to understand, is not punishment. 
Let me say that again. The purpose of this disassociation is not punishment. Rather, it's restorative. Paul says to have nothing to do with them so they may be ashamed. Keep in mind, in front of God, we have guilt. But in front of man, we have shame. We're worried about our reputations. We're worried about how we're viewed by others. In the first century, it was no different. And the hope is that the shame may help bring them to repentance and to let them have an opportunity to be restored, not only in their relationship with Jesus, because this kind of living would be outside his will, but also inside the congregation. That is always the goal of church discipline, to bring repentance and restoration. Paul is not talking about outsiders. How we handle those inside the congregation who are being irresponsible and disruptive is who Paul is talking about. You can see it again when he says, warn them as a brother, not as an enemy. His basic principle for holding one another accountable can be found in Galatians chapter 6. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. I've said before, and it's not something I'm really proud of, but it's very true, anytime I take a spiritual gifts assessment, mercy doesn't show up. Not even hardly a little bit. And you're thinking, well, wow, and you're in the ministry? Yeah, I'm working through some things. But you know, that doesn't leave me out of this verse. That doesn't, just because I'm not naturally merciful, I'm commanded to be. Though I'm not naturally gentle, I'm commanded to be. And honestly, if you ask me, Keenan, do you enjoy confrontation? Because usually people with this strong of a personality love confrontation. I'd have to tell you, not at all. And this is the reason why. Because even if it's a truth, I'm trying to share and get across to someone I'm, I got to worry about how I'm doing it. Now, I, would, I come from a long line of sharp tongues. I could cut you down and walk away, and if it wasn't for Jesus in me, never think twice about it. But Jesus says, ooh, don't do that. So even when a brother or a sister is, is in a, a, a problem, they've got sin in their life, and they need to be addressed and held accountable, we're to do it, according to Paul, with gentleness with mercy. In other words, there would be meekness. But there comes a point when we actually have to uh, stop considering them a brother. Look at Titus chapter 3, Paul writing here. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So it moves from a point of don't treat them like an enemy, treat them like a brother, correct them gently, disassociate with them for the purpose of bringing them back in repentance and restoration. But if they refuse to hear it, if they refuse to change, have nothing to do with them at all. In fact, don't even consider them a brother anymore. So what are our takeaways from this passage? Uh, First off, I'd say, though not stated explicitly, 
as we have talked about, we have an obligation to take care of our members in need. We uh, come from a culture and, and just inbred in us, in our DNA, is we don't like to ask for help. And how often have I been asked for help when the deadline for that help was that day or the next? Because we just, we were unwilling to ask. But let me encourage you, if you are a member of our church, we are here to help. Don't, don't hesitate. Come to us, help us, let us minister to your needs. Secondly, I would say those able to work have an obligation to work. And they have that obligation for, for two reasons. First off, they are, uh, by the church, unnecessarily providing for them. When they are able to work, it takes away from the resources the church could use for others. It also, on top of that, means there needs to be more resources available. The second way is if they were working they could possibly help lighten the load needed to care for those who have a genuine need because it's about others. It's about spreading the gospel. So Paul closes this letter, as I'm going to, with a benediction, as he does in his other letters. And, and it feels, I almost feel like there needed to be a transition sentence between verses 15 and 16. I feel like Paul should have written something kind of like this. I know what is contained in this letter can be difficult to take in. So as you struggle with it for understanding, and as you struggle to be obedient, verse 16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So as Wason and the band comes, I'm going to ask us, a couple questions as we close. Though this passage of Scripture is talking about those who are unable to work causing disruption. They're causing disruption through meddling in others' lives. Though we may not have that going on, maybe that's not you, but let's don't hold it so confined to the very tightness of exactly what it says. What's the principle here? Is gossip going on? being nosy, sometimes disguised as concern? Is it pushing for our own agendas? Is it divisiveness from a sense of self-appointed authority? The list goes on and on. Disruption happens in our congregations. It shouldn't. Paul points out there shouldn't be. We should be unified. But disruption happens. May we be willing to receive the rebuke we need if our actions are detrimental to the spreading of the gospel. May we be willing to accept what the Scriptures say. May we be willing to hear the Holy Spirit speak into our hearts and willing to act on that. There's another application here when it comes to helping carry the burden of the congregation. And, and I, I've said it in the other two services, I'll say it now. I typed this out, I wrote this down, and I've had to pray about, Lord, are you sure you want me to bring this up? And I feel like his answer was yes. So let me just tell you what the Lord impressed upon me. Though we thank you nearly every week for your faithfulness in giving, the truth is 
we may all be surprised to see the very low overall percentage of the people who are carrying that burden. Just as the goal from Paul's message to the Thessalonians was restoration within the community and restoration to God, my goal of bringing this up now is for those who are not being obedient to God to have an opportunity to see from the scriptures that they need to be helping out lighten the burden. Some of you, it may be because you've never, never been taught any different. We have discussions around the office a lot about the unchurched world we live in now and that we are, have a generation being raised who don't know the basic doctrines of our scripture and a, and a couple generations don't understand the doctrine of tithing. Maybe you don't know. Or maybe you're just being disobedient because, and you do know. We as a church have been able to minister in North Alabama and around the world by the faithfulness of his people for the last two centuries. But church family, there is still so much more to be done. If you've not been giving, if you have not been obedient in this area, when I encourage you to pray about that, about how and when you should start so that you can help lighten the burden by participating through obedience.